This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. Hello, this is Bonjour Hi, the Two Naomi Solution Edition, and I'm Phoebe Maltzbovi. Avi is out this week, so I'll be joined by the CJN's managing editor, Mark Weisblatt, to discuss Naomi Klein, Naomi Wolf, any Naomi's you happen to have come across in your own life. Um, and also we'll talk about drama at the 92nd Street Y and uh, all manner of topics. Mark, tell us a little about yourself. Who are you and and what's your deal? I'm just the guy who's been minding the shop here at the Canadian Jewish News, the website for a publication that has been operating for the past 64 years. January 1st, 1960 was the first day that the CJN debuted as a newspaper. And uh, here I've... I've elbowed Avi out of the way so that we can we can get into uh, uh, talking about some of our plans uh, for what can happen with Bonjour High now that the podcast has been spun off into a sub stack. Mark, what I'm I'm going to ask you on behalf of listeners who may not know what is a subset, uh, well, and what is it going to be in the context of Bonjour High? And I ask, I should say, um, in the interests of transparency, that I I too am curious about exactly where that's going to go with Bonjour High specifically. I have a Substack of my own. I'm familiar with the platform, but Mark, please tell us a bit more about the Bonjour High Substack. Phoebe, you and me both. Okay. Uh, look, <laughs> uh, uh, can we uh, use the the format of the show, the sort of topics that you've been covering here every week? Uh, can we do more with that to connect? Community, uh, we've experimented with that. With it's a, a newsletter. Yeah, yeah, so just to, a, the quick version is: it's a, a Substack is a newsletter. A Substack is a newsletter that goes out by email, and um, so it's not that you go necessarily to a website. It's that it comes into your inbox as an email, and you can or and you can also use the Substack app. Okay, there you go, Phoebe. You answered your own question. But look, uh, 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 with the Canadian Jewish News since October seventh, uh, we've been in this accelerated phase of news publishing. Obviously, this is an unprecedented experience as far as finding uh, the different uh, Canadian angles on the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, Bonjour Chai, uh, at the same time, has also been covering these topics, but but in a different way. Signing up at bonjourchai.substack.com uh, will be, be a way to uh, hear what we are talking about behind the curtain and uh, hopefully as as we return to more regular programming um, it'll be a way to get those talking points that that you want to have uh, Jewish conversations about about whatever is happening and you're even allowed to listen and read the substack if you're not Jewish we do not um, it's not like birthright we don't try to assess whether yeah but the the bigger picture that relates to uh my primary role here look uh uh, the cjn when it was a a weekly community newspaper uh covered covered a whole bunch of uh, different topics uh that that were designed for that format 
And here we are into a different era in which we're publishing a, a quarterly magazine uh, along with the CJN podcast network. And the, 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 the bigger question here then is what happens to Jewish journalism from this point going forward, right? Will the typical Jewish community article be about things like, you know, the changes to a, a seating arrangement in a synagogue, or here's a, a story about like the 54th anniversary of a delicatessen or something, right? The, these are the these are the old school stories. I, I think there will still be a place uh, for those tales because there are always uh, quirky personalities behind these things. But there are always more sandwiches. Yeah, what, what, yeah. what do we want Jewish journalism to be in the future? Sign up for the Bonjour High newsletter and hopefully you can get a, a glimpse and that we can have a, a wider dialogue in a, in a different direction from where things are headed with the Canadian Jewish news. At the same time, our quarterly print magazine, which is coming out with a splendid new issue for Hanukkah. And how do people get this magazine? Uh, the way you they can know. get the magazine to their door, a hard print copy, is by making a donation to the Canadian Jewish News, the cjn.ca slash donate. Uh, too late to get on the list for this fall. But in 2024, they'll get a rebranded, reimagined, uh, re-expanded <laughs> idea of a magazine. Phoebe, you know, because you've been part of the plans. I know all about it. I know all uh, about secret it. strategies bringing in the Canadian Jewish news to, to a wider demographic, uh, different generations, and, and, and giving giving people something to talk about. That's ultimately well, speaking what of Jews want. finding things to talk about, not to leap, I was not across the Atlantic, across um, Lake Ontario to my hometown and even my home neighborhood. In fact, what's going on at the 92nd street? Why in New York? Well, Phoebe, this is your kind of story involving the New York cultural elite, right? You grew up among them on the, on the upper East side. I did. I did. Geographically, if not um, interpersonally, yes. Reading uh, a package uh, about how the world has changed since October 7. And the headline there, uh, uh, 92, 92 NY splits with the cultural elite. So what went down there was... So who are the cultural well, elite? Well, the cultural elite that they have... Because I think there are different The ones that they have divorced, uh, this Jewish institution, uh, they're, they're the sort of authors who will sign an open letter, uh, uh, let's say, uh, accusing Israel of committing genocide. And this gets a little bit complicated when you're running what has traditionally been a Jewish institution, but at the same time, one that has uh, taken great strides to be as pluralistic as possible, right? Taking the concept of the Jewish community center uh, and, and making it a, a hub for events that are, that are not exclusively Jewish, so this is something that I think gets to something we'll talk about maybe a bit more in this podcast, but just the difference between sort of Toronto and New York Jewishness and how it functions, that there's just, there are so many, they're just like, New York is just a much more Jewish city. And I don't mean that, but it's also Jewishness is like a much more cultural phenomenon in New York, I think, than in Toronto. And 
something like the 92nd Street Y that's clearly got a Jewish component, but that there's no reason to think non-Jews wouldn't be going to a lot of stuff there. Um, it, it's, it, it functions maybe a little differently uh, just because there's more general population, cultural interest in things Jewish. I don't know if that's clarifying at all, but also, and also that it's happening in the very, not in the very center of downtown because 92nd Street is not lower Manhattan or midtown Manhattan, but it's still like Manhattan, you know, it's still kind of the middle of um, the city. Whereas I think in Toronto, um, there's no, like, I don't think the Miles Nadal JCC has any sort of cultural equivalent. It's not the cultural equivalent of the 92nd Street Y. It's, it's, there's some overlap, but it's a different kind of place. Okay. Viet Tan Nguyen, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, was supposed to be at an event at the 92nd Street Y, and he ended up being disinvited for signing one of these open letters. Uh, not welcome on the stage of a Jewish community center, uh, because I had to draw the line somewhere, right? We, we, don't, we don't want to be a place where people who are speaking out vehemently against Israel, uh, where they have a, a, a forum, uh, they are, they're just not welcome here. That's, that's basically where they drew the line. Uh, and naturally, a revolt followed involving other authors who then disinvited themselves uh, from their planned appearances and the fall 2023 cultural calendar of the 92nd Street Y was uh, emptier than uh, than originally planned it was Malcolm Gladwell uh, a Canadian uh, who uh, followed through in in showing up at one of his appearances there. And uh, he is uh, definitely uh, into the concept of free speech. But here in this New York Magazine story, Gladwell saying, like, uh, it, it came down to a question of manners, right? This is the home of Jewish intellectual life in Manhattan. So if you're going to be speaking there, you, you, don't, you don't sign a petition that says, Israel is committing grave crimes against humanity. It's a matter of respect, right? Gladwell said, like, there will be people in the audience who had loved ones who, who were killed on October 7th. Um, you, you've, you've got to display some respect for the, for the circumstances, for, for, for your benefactors, for, for the scenario that's, that's making these things possible. That is all they're asking. Phoebe, do you, do you think that is a reasonable enough request? <laughs> Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I think that I want to kind of hone in what you, the, the word benefactors, because I feel like a lot of this conversation seems to suggest that there's like a powerful money having, and there sometimes are, depending who's saying it, more sinister implications, elite who is sort of getting, who, who's um, cracking down on pro-Palestinian speech, whereas if you're pro-Israel, everybody loves you and you do fine and you never catch any kind of flack from anybody in a you know, except maybe some activist teenagers. And I think that the way things are shaping out in kind of the cult on the cultural landscape is really complicated. And um, the fact that the 92nd Street Y is a Jewish institution is itself, I mean, like you could say, well, there are some Jews who probably signed, if not that petition and some other similar, I mean, we know there are, you know, Jews who understand what Israel's doing as genocide and 
there are three of them about and they get a ton, a ton of press. And this is something I keep talking about. But basically, I think that what happens is there's a kind of cultural norm in kind of artistic circles or whatever writing circles of, you know, very much being pro-Palestinian, really, you know, like <laughs> if you think about what's happened at the National Book Awards in the US or the Giller in Canada, like there's clearly, there's a sort of artists and writers, whatever, the in-group is pro-Palestinian. However, institutions are not the same as in-groups. And sometimes, you know, yes, obviously there have been instances of people getting you know, losing out on some position or other because of being pro-Palestinian. That that has also obviously happened. So I think um, I think it's it's tricky. And I think that trying to figure out um, whether, like, I think what what I see just because I happen to follow on social media a lot of people with different views is like both sides kind of convinced that they're not allowed to say anything, um, and both being in some ways right. Yeah. So it's it's. Uh, in terms of the manners thing, um, I, I wouldn't say that it's manners. I think it's more just that like organizations, you know, like having specific missions and being able to talk about like, like there's not, there's not an, like the right to free speech is not, you can say anything at any institution at any time. It, it's more like, how does the 92nd street Y want it to define itself? And that's up for the 92nd street Y to, I guess, decide, you know, that's not like, the First Amendment doesn't say that the 92nd Street Y has to host any particular person. The the um, Giller Prize was the event in Toronto, Scotiabank Giller Prize, uh, founded by Jack Rabinovich uh, in, in honor of uh, his late wife, uh, Doris uh, Giller. Uh, Jack uh, has also passed away, uh, but there is a, a Jewish enough connection to this uh, secular secular event. Uh, the Giller Prize event was rudely interrupted uh, during their their televised gala dinner uh, by by three uh, young Torontonians. They've been charged with obstructing, interrupting, or interfering with the lawful use, enjoyment, or operation of property and forging a document, which uh, which I assume means uh, that they made like fake media passes to get through the door. Comically enough, uh, the initial uh, protester ran on stage, had a sign about the sponsor, Scotiabank. Scotiabank funds genocide. And he happened to be holding the sign upside down. Uh, Rick Mercer, who was hosting uh, the Giller ceremony, uh, tried to... Uh, uh, reply with a with a deadpan reaction it created a viral moment enough of a, a, a meme out there and maybe they got their point across which was Scotiabank has like a a, a multi-million billion dollar stake in a weapons manufacturer uh, uh, that's supplying uh, uh, the Israel uh, defense forces uh, Elbit systems I mean if the if the whole point was to bring this to uh, public attention I, I guess uh, mission mission accomplished uh, uh, Phoebe I, I think we we are both fans of civil disobedience uh, 
we can appreciate when when somebody does something something rude enough in public to get attention. Uh, the whole idea of interrupting the Giller Prize, frightening the benefactors who were who were in the audience for this thing. When you hear about an event like this happening, what is your reaction? Well, I don't see it as frightening in the sense of like, I mean, when I when I read about like protesters blocking a bridge, I think about all the people who like need to get somewhere, perhaps for medical or caregiving reasons and can't. And I, I find that kind of frightening. When I think about people interrupting a prize ceremony, I mean, I think I think what's I don't even know if fear is the right way to think about it. It's more just like feeling like you might think that you have commonplace that you have the normal people views. And then I think a moment like that makes sort of is disrupts that and makes it seem like actually that's not the case. And I think it's very hard. I find in Toronto, I find it very hard to have a sense of like, what do people generally think about this war? Because I go around in my neighborhood in Roncesvalles in West Toronto, and I see exclusively pro-Palestinian signage, no hostage flyers um, at all. I know there are a lot of Jews, like not a lot, I should, I take it back. I know there are some Jews in the neighborhood. Um, I know that there are some people who aren't Jewish, whose politics are not um, what the flyers are, to put it mildly. Um, And then I also see that the flyers get kind of regularly like commented on in various sort of gentle and less gentle ways, right? Like I think there was at one point, no, somebody did put like a counter flyer up once but on the whole, it's like you get something that's like ceasefire now and somebody's written like no over it in a marker. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's all um, I think it's very hard to tell sort of what like like I think both sides of this are trying to give the impression at the same time that nobody that, that they are the sort of oppressed minority in terms of ideas but also that like everybody thinks as they do. So it's complicated. Okay, yeah. well, Rontes Vales uh, was historically a, a Polish neighborhood of and Toronto. And continues to be, right? continues okay, to be. Okay, so, so some of be. the biggest anti-Semites in the history of <laughs> Toronto uh, at least uh, used to be your neighbors. Uh, yeah, so that's the thing that I can't figure out because um, by all accounts, it seems to be teenagers putting these up now. It's not that they couldn't be Polish teenagers, but the fact is like, I think it's also to give it kind of like a more global, whatever, North American context. It's a neighborhood not so unlike Park Slope or Cobble Hill or something in Brooklyn at this point. It's got a lot of um, sort of yuppie type people who are not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. You arrived just in time to be a big gentrifier, right? But, but look, uh, there, there was, there was always a, a concept, uh, growing up in Toronto that there, there were, there were different kinds of Jewish politics and that these things could be divided along geographical lines. And the, the whole notion that there would have been a Jewish person who was born and raised in downtown Toronto into the late 20th century, uh, this was strange to those of us who had parents and grandparents who would have grown up there, essentially what was a downtown Toronto shtetl. And a- as soon as they could afford it, uh, they got out of Dodge, right? Like they they mm-hmm. fled for the suburbs, Uh so that's very different from what happened in New York, where that also happened, like the flight to the suburbs that you're talking about. But so, too, did like a ton of Jews staying in and arriving in 
downtown New York, like lower Manhattan, you know, dense parts of Brooklyn and so forth. So it played, I think it seems to have played out differently, but I do think that we're kind of, we are um, approaching, we're going to have to talk about these um, Naomi's soon, but before we do so, a word from our sponsors. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Okay, so Naomi Klein. Where does Naomi Klein, the author Naomi Klein, author of Doppelganger most recently, author of The Shock Doctrine and... um, other books. Where does she fit into this urban versus suburban Toronto Jewish or Montreal Jewish? Or where do, where does she fit into the landscape? I would go so far as to say that back in the 1990s, Toronto, uh, if you wanted to imagine a downtown Toronto Jewish power couple, it was uh, uh, Naomi Klein, uh, who at the time uh, rose from being the editor of the University of Toronto Varsity newspaper uh, to a column in the Toronto Star and editing this magazine, uh, eventually uh, compiling her, her different thoughts about culture jamming into a book called No Logo. Uh, she ended up uh, marrying uh, Avi Lewis. Uh, he was uh, the son of two legendary Toronto Jewish leftists, uh, Stephen Lewis and Michelle Landsberg, very high profile personalities in media and politics. Uh, it was Avi Lewis and, and Naomi Klein. If you, if you needed an example of downtown Toronto Jewish politics, those would have been the first two people that came to mind. And, Again, and what made their politics Jewish? Does it was it that they happened to be Jews, or were they advocating for things within a Jewish uh, sort of mindset framework, whatever? I'm not quite sure. All I knew is that this was a world apart from the one that I grew up in, and it was a mm-hmm. world in which I wanted to be a part. I got to be part of the history in Toronto of campus radio stations and alternative weekly newspapers. Uh, and, and it was just a, a assumed that, that if you were involved in these things, like uh, they were royalty, right? They, they were the ones mm-hmm. who had uh, uh, the, the highest profiles. Uh, Avi, Avi Lewis would uh, uh, be on much music uh, in the 1990s. He, he was the one that did, if you remember this, in, in the United States on MTV, uh, when they took credit for electing Bill Clinton. Okay, well, what happens if you're uh, somebody like me who is aspiring to have a creative career and uh, over time you realize that your own 
personal politics are a little bit different from uh, Phoebe, what what you branded as moral certitude, right? What's oh, supposed to be yeah. like the norm for a downtown Toronto person when it comes to their perspective on a topic like Israel? Uh, I, sure. I I definitely felt like I I deviated from all that. If you got me talking at the time, I might have chalked it up to some sort of brainwashing at day school or Jewish summer camp. But but I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I don't know how much of this was nature versus nurture. All I knew is that I, I didn't fit in with the, with the default politics of a downtown Toronto Jewish person. I do want to, though, jump back to what you were talking about, the, about the sort of power couple thing, because so I wrote about Naomi Klein's book Doppelganger, and I interviewed her for it, um, and that's in the CJN magazine. So, and it's online. Um, at the, and it's already yeah. online. You can knock yourself out, and I, I urge you to do so, um, because I, I had a lot of fun um, writing this one. But um, the framing of the book is about that she gets confused for the American Jewish writer Naomi Wolf, who famously wrote The Beauty Myth, which came out in 1990, but then she has since become kind of first a kind of lesser known author and then sort of anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorist, which is where she sits now. But anyway, the point is that there was some part in the book where Naomi Klein is saying that like she hadn't really seen the, like the beauty myth had seemed kind of silly to her. And because like her own mother had like Naomi Klein's mother had done a feminist documentary that already addressed all these issues. And I'll, I just like that was a part of the book I just sat with for a while thinking like, well, yeah, I'm sure it would. I'm sure a groundbreaking feminist book would seem different to you. It is it, a very specific world to come from. And, and what what seemed interesting about like how that relates to her book itself is that like there's this line in it where. Naomi Klein's sort of drawing some parallels between like the things she thinks and the things Naomi Wolf thinks some kind of wacky version of and saying sort of like, but the difference is that like, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have this exact line in front of me, but like, but that the difference is like the, the stuff I think is, is true. <laughs> so I was, I was very excited to read it because Mark, you suggested this topic to me. I had not really thought about either of these Naomi's a great deal beforehand. And now, and then I felt like I thought of nothing else for months. Um, but basically, I was expecting to be just completely on Naomi Klein's side because how weird it would be to be confused for somebody who's sort of gone off the rails and become a right wing conspiracy theorist. You know, that would be weird and all of that. And I was I was interested. And also I had seen a little bit about the book, which was very um, it was embargoed. It was a whole big deal to write about it at all. To get the galley was a big deal. To talk to her was all very big deal um, more than these things normally are. And I, I was excited about it, but then um, I read it and I just thought, wow, she's just basically like, like, this is very, like, like if Naomi Wolf thinks people are out to get her, it's not entirely paranoia when you read a, a book that's, that keeps returning to basically what an idiot she is, um, a kind of sinister idiot. And the, the, confu the confusion spawns from the fact that these are women, Jewish women with the same first name uh, yeah, who, who uh, gained a, a certain level of recognition because they wrote these big idea books. So in the end, which, which team Naomi are you on? I am on team neither Naomi. I wish them both the best personally. I think they both have 
you know, done interesting things in their lives. And my my heart is always as it would have to be with the opinionated Jewish women who are happy to, you know, write a book holding forth about what they think. I, you know, sure. I I don't I didn't come across like I didn't come away from Doppelganger thinking, aha, Naomi Wolf has a point. Yes, it must have been that Matthew Perry died from the COVID vaccine or or that you go to a hotel room and get menstrual cramps because somebody who had been in that hotel room had uh, been vaccinated. Like she's obviously she's both like Naomi Wolf is obviously both a bit nuts and a bit um, and and has troubling politics that she has as Naomi Klein uh, never ceases to remind she has a platform for it. Like she gets platformed by Steve Bannon. Like she's, she's kind of a big deal on the conspiracy theorist. Right. But so I didn't come away from it thinking like, aha, Naomi Wolf actually makes good points. Rather, I came away from it thinking, okay, Naomi Wolf is who I thought she was. I don't think we need to retroactively claim that she was never any good. I think the beauty myth was actually quite brilliant, but, um, I think Naomi Klein, like she, she just seems to want like she just seems to want a good grade or something like she, it just seemed like she had done a a term paper very thoroughly and she has lots and lots of very learned references. And the reason I mentioned about the doing of the homework is because the whole thing with Naomi Wolf, where things um, went awry for her was that she had done a PhD at, I think it was Oxford where uh, she did a, her thesis was something about gay men in Victorian England or what would now be called gay men, you know, in Victorian England and she learned on live on BBC radio that she had screwed up like a key detail in her book and had gotten some stuff extremely wrong and was very publicly humiliated over this. And that happened just before COVID and may or may not explain a lot of what happened since. You've also got uh, uh, Naomi Klein expressing a betrayal by, by her own tribe and, and, she she takes particular aim at the wellness community, right? The the influencers who uh, themselves were anti-vaxxers, uh, posting on on Instagram, uh, showing off uh, how they were were but not is that going. Her tribe? They, they, they is were, that her tribe? Well, it was it was a sense that they were all in this together in Canada as members of the new Democratic Party. Avi Lewis even ran in a federal election during this time. Uh, and uh, it, it seemed from what right. she wrote about, they were, they were shocked and, and surprised that these people who were, who were natural NDP voters in, in British Columbia were themselves you know, s- uh, spouting off uh, the, the same conspiracy theories, uh, something you know, similar about how, how they didn't want the, the government intruding into their, into their bodies by, by mandating vaccines. Uh, and this, I mean, this also yeah. came up along the way, right on the on the other side of the mirror. Like she doesn't doesn't know where to turn. E- everywhere you go, never meet your heroes. Right? Uh, uh, we've got uh, at the at the end of the book, she talks about uh, being being a twenty year old student journalist I- encountering Naomi Wolf. Yeah, so that I really do want to talk about because I think, and this gets really at your point about the betrayals aspect, because I think she kind of wants the framing to be that she, that Naomi Wolf was somebody she once looked up to who now thinks these horrible things and how could that have happened? But at the same time, her framing is that Naomi Wolf has always been a bit of a ditz, has always been a liberal rather than a radical, rather than a socialist, that Naomi Wolf has always 
had kind of the wrong politics, that Naomi Wolf has always had kind of the wrong priorities. So this comes up um, earlier in the book when she talks about Naomi Wolf um, sort of hyperventilating over um, the possibility that she would be kicked out of a, a fancy Tribeca in Manhattan coffee or whatever, like hotel coffee shop or something for not being vaccinated. And then this never even happens. Um, so like Naomi Klein talks about going to publishers who didn't want her books because they wanted something more about the body, more like as in a sort of Naomi Wolf style book. So I don't actually get the sense. Yes, she did go interview her as a student journalist, but the most she can kind of summon about having ever looked up to her is that she had kind of, that Naomi Klein had kind of modeled her book jacket photo on Naomi Wolf's and that in some very, very general sense looked up to her as another woman public intellectual. But it doesn't seem that she actually, she she also seems to want to make it clear that she never really looked up to Naomi Wolf and always found and sort of knew from the get-go that she was a little ridiculous. Phoebe, your next book is about the state of straight womanhood. Do I got that right? It is. You got that right. And yes. uh, uh, we, we, we were both uh, uh, fixated upon a viral video from uh, the recent rally, March for Israel in Washington, D.C., in which a 26-year-old full-time social media influencer. Isn't that what all 26-year-olds do these days, though, Mark? Isn't that just the main employer of 26-year-olds? Morgan Rom uh, was working her way uh, through the Washington rally uh, with a, a big sign with the words, I'm single. And an Israeli flag draped over herself like a cape. That's, I think, another good detail. In subsequent days, the Crack researchers at the Jewish Daily Forward in New York City. I think they just call it the Forward these days, but yes. Got, got yes. in touch with uh, <laughs> with Morgan Rom, who uh, provided them with an explanation of the motivation be, behind her sign. Phoebe, did you buy the idea that Morgan Rom was just satirizing the Jewish idea? of going to a rally like this looking for a husband? Or was she genuinely trying to tr attract some men writing to her in the <laughs> DMs? Sure. So I think satire, it depends what you mean by satire. If you really, like, if what, what's meant by satire is that she's trying to make the sort of singles culture of uh, North American, or in this case, really just American uh, Jewish life, if she's trying to make that look bad, then maybe she's actually like supporting the, you know, like ceasefire movement and she's going to the rally kind of undercover as a pro-Israel person. And it, the whole thing is to make, you know, this part of the Jewish community look bad. And I don't, from her Instagram, I can tell you that that is not the case. In so, I, I do think she's poking fun. I don't think she's quite satirizing. I think she's poking a little fun, but she's also kind of having fun. So what I had theorized about this basically turned out to be true. So I didn't really find the forwards. Um, I mean, I'm glad they did it. I'm glad they asked her and all of this, but I don't feel like there was a big reveal. Basically, yes, she's obviously an influencer, obviously trying to, you know, get clicks on her Instagram or whatever, rather than simply getting dates, you know, like this is obviously a business strategy as opposed to merely a personal one. Do I think that she's personally trying to get men? Well, I think there are more efficient ways of trying to get men. 
but I don't like, I don't think that this is about like thirst in that sense. I think it is though a political statement to say that you're going to make Jewish babies to counteract the anti-Semites. I think that's, there's a big history of this, you know, like post-war Jewish life of people saying like, you have to marry somebody Jewish and have Jewish babies to stick it to Hitler because, you know, that's kind of the, um, the rhetoric that I, I've seen for, you know, I dare say decades. Um, but I think that some of that, like, I, I don't know that she was joking about this. I think, she, I don't think she was like dead serious. Like I'm going to get pregnant on the Israel rally and nine months from now have Jewish babies. I think it was more like, but, but I don't think, like, I do think she was kind of poking fun, but I don't think that she was like actually genuinely satirizing it if that makes sense it was it um, was because, okay yeah, look, look, i look. think and i think it is and i would say just to bring it back to the naomi's thing i think this is a distinctly what interested me about this was that this was like what is it to sort of do a politically straight woman act because you don't really hear about that you hear about like queers for palestine but you don't really hear about like straights for israel like what would that even be well here is the straight for israel is this lady because she it's not that she's actually not interested in men or not single she is interested in men and single like i think those are it um, was it details. was it was a non-denial denial, right? It was a yes. passive aggressive move. Uh it it it's the the kind Well the, it was also the, no, the, but she was she was pushing back, I would just say very specifically that she was pushing back what I saw in the comments to her Instagram was people saying like sort of like you frivolous lady, you just think this you're just trying to get a date. That I saw somebody was saying like that shows that there's no real cause for Israel, like that Israel has no sort of point because look at this frivolity. And I don't think what she was doing was frivolous at all. I don't think that that I don't think that that's yeah. I, I think it was extremely political. Oh, the only takeaway here is that her display was good for the Jews, and that in this in this period of incredible trauma, right, that we're we're still we're still capable of of leaning into these cliches and and having fun with the the perception that uh, an event like this in which there would be, uh, I guess, at least several eligible young Jewish men, uh, that you can think two things at once, and at the same time that you're marching at a rally in Washington, D.C., that you can be checking out who else is showing up there. Well, and, and that sure. you can, Avi and like, I talked about this. Yes, Avi and I talked about this on the last podcast, because I was saying that I think there's, because he was saying that, like, um, he had been kind of, it sounded like maybe a little put off by the people treating it, treating this rally as kind of a social, like this was before this I'm single lady video, whatever, before we saw that. But I was saying that I think all of these rallies, both pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian are, have social elements, you know, and I think that that's, that's just how it is. I think that she was having a bit of fun I think she was adding a bit of levity to, like you say, like a pretty dark time. And I also, another note thing I noticed about it was a lot of people kind of tried to, um, ex I don't even want to say, it's not quite explaining the joke to her, but seems to think that they were being more clever by saying, because somebody had tweeted that like, oh, it's, it's, this is the most Jewish thing ever. And a lot of people in the replies were like, no, the most Jewish thing ever would have been if somebody said, my daughter is single. And it's like, uh, okay, like, let her have her joke. Like, let her have her joke. I, I didn't see any signs like these uh, in Toronto when there was uh, a downtown <laughs> rally at Christie Pitts, uh, site of uh, 
1933 riot, which is a big part of Jewish history. It was part of that that downtown Toronto shtetl that that uh, most of the Jews wanted to flee because of the anti-Semitism that they saw as synonymous with those neighborhoods. Uh, but yeah, here was a situation where the the establishment suburban Toronto. Jewish community was was setting themselves up on this downtown turf. There were buses that came in from the suburbs. They ignored uh, residents of Thornhill who were wondering why the why the rally wasn't happening up there. Uh, it was wonderful to see this community come together for a cause specifically focused at the time on freeing uh, the hostages. Uh, but at the same time. Uh, on my mind, as I was walking through the field, uh, I, I wondered if it was enough of a success in drawing the Jews who actually live in downtown Toronto, uh, who uh, by default would be more left-leaning. Phoebe, do you, do you think we can, we can look to more of them joining, joining our tribe and, and maybe seeing this uh, uh, you know, through, through a, a wider lens than they did before. Uh, I- well, I don't know what tribe we're in. I think I think it may be somewhat unto ourselves. But I think um, in terms of the downtown turnout, I would imagine a little bit of this had to do with publicity and the fact that there are on every uh, signpost near me about five ceasefire <laughs> rally flyers. Um, and like you would not know that this was happening unless you were already plugged into some network that told you about it. What, it, what Okay, so I do actually, though, have like a more sort of political take apart from like where there are flyers, which is that I think Jews are very integrated at this point, and a lot are married to non-Jews, myself included, and a lot of non-Jews have a real stake in Jews not being basically crapped upon by general society because they have Jewish children and Jewish family and Jewish partners and so forth. And I think there are a lot of people who are on the side of Jews here who are not Jewish. And I think, and also just who are friends who are Jewish or just who, who see Jews as people, I don't know, I guess would be one way to put it. And I think that maybe what needs to, maybe some allies need to be harnessed here a little bit um, and are being harnessed here a little bit. But um, I think that I wouldn't assume that I, I, I certainly like, I, I would assume that, Jews probably like the, that there are not a whole lot like despite what you despite the tremendous amount of publicity any um truly anti-Zionist Jews get I think most have somewhat positive feelings about Israel but I think there are a lot of people who and I mean you can just look at like public opinion surveys from Canada it's not like it's not the five ceasefire flyers per uh whatever signpost in the you know, in Canada, right? So I think, um, I guess what I'm saying is, I think that there are a lot of people who are on, insofar as I could sum it up as our side, our side. Um, and it's just a matter of kind of finding them and uh, hoping that they speak out sometimes publicly and not just privately. See, that's what I meant by our bonjour chai tribe. Okay, so listen, we're going to move on to the final piece of the show, which is our Nachas of the week, which is when we say something that is positive that has happened over the week. 
could be Canadian, it could be Jewish, it could be Canadian and Jewish, it could be General Mark. What have you got? Okay, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, a writer and editor who I've known pretty much my entire life, Daphna Eisenberg. Uh, She works uh, currently for The Walrus Magazine, uh, an article in its December issue, also online. Uh, uh, The title is Second Genesis. Uh, Genesis the Band, not Genesis, the book of the Torah, uh, which you can currently hear being read in a synagogue near you. This is uh, a Genesis, a tribute band transcending the original, uh, the musical box and the phenomenon of of playing these uh, Genesis tribute concerts. Uh, I get a little bit of credit here because it turns out that I was the person who originally told Daphna about Genesis uh, decades ago. Uh, The enthusiasm that I had for uh, early 1980s, Phil Collins and the album Abacab. But I I didn't follow her into taking that leap into uh, uh, Genesis with Peter Gabriel and the the lamb lies down on Broadway, but but I, I think uh, a lot of Jewish people of a certain age uh, gravitated towards that progressive rock, and you can read all about the Genesis tribute band at the Walrus. All right, well that sounds great. Um, so I've got I, I realize I have two. Can I do two nachases? Is that all right? You could do whatever you so- want. I'm going to do, I'm going to do just, I'm just going to do nachases for 10 consecutive hours and Zach can edit it down. Okay. No. Um, so the first is, um, this was co-authored by Isabel Sloan, who's a writer I'm always recommending. Um, and it's called Where the Wild Things Were. It's in Toronto Life. And it's about this loft building that had had a lot of artists in it and um, its history. It's like a sort of photo essay. The photos are by Nathan Cyprus or Cypris, I'm not sure. Um, and it, it's just an interesting um, Toronto visual history and it's interviews with all these different people who lived in this building with photos of them. Really, really interesting. My other nachas is going to be Fear of Flying, the 1979, not, not, sorry, 1973 novel by Erica Jong. I'm rereading it for the straight women book, but it has a ton of Jewish content to it, um, more than I even remember. Some of it's about being an American Jew in Germany and Austria and what that's like or was like at the time, sort of mid-century post-war. So I recommend that if you haven't read it before, get on that. If you have read it before, give it a reread. Thank you for listening to Bonjour High for the week ending November 25th. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by So-Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can send us a message at bonjour at thecjn.ca or you can get in touch with us via our new Substack. Thank you so much for listening. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.